0: Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for um, watching over us all week long. Thank you for our health. Thank you for our families and preserving us. We ask you to be with us as we look into Nestorianism. We pray for we pray for wisdom and ears and discernment. We also pray, Lord, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I'm going to try it differently. I'm going to put my screen this way so I can see more people that way because I felt like I was cutting off people over here. Looking that way, so here we are to the heresy zone. Hey, Kelly, can you close that door, please? Can you close the door? Thanks. All right, it's so the fifth dimension between that which is known to man. This dimension is vast as space and timeless as infinity. It's a middle ground between light and shadow, between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. It's the dimension of imagination. It's all area we call the heresy zone. So there are aims. Oops, let's do this. Anybody remember any of the aims? Any of them for the class? Do what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be able to spot more contemporary manifestations. Very good. What else? What are some other aims? Oh, you're cheating. You've got that. (laughs) Bill has that on his phone. He's looking at it there. That's good. Very good. I'll take it. All right, that's good. All right. So ultimately, remember 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. Ultimately, it's so that we'll be able to be aware, keep stable, and grow. Remember Peter said right before this, he said, there are some who twist the writings of Paul and the rest of Scripture to their own destruction, that they're unstable. And then he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away, by the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so, knowing that there are always going to be, at some point, there are going to be some of these uh, heretical groups, we're aware of that, but we know what what we're to do, and we're to be the, the ones who are aware, stable, and growing, primarily growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and not part of the the lawless people who are unstable, okay? That's the number one. Secondly, become familiar with aspects of our own history uh, by understanding several of the major heretical movements and moments of the first five centuries, reflect on our own day and place in history, and be equipped to explain to others what we believe and why it is important. So all of that's significant for us to have in mind, Okay? Because sometimes you get a class like this and all it's about is just criticizing. But when you realize that it's not for us just to criticize, it's actually for us to gain from and grow from and be able to defend the faith and talk to others and tell them uh, and, and to discern all that aspect, it makes it a little bit bigger than what could normally be. All right, so our plan has been what is heresy and how to think about it. We started out with that. We've gone through all these different groups, Ebionites, Marcion, Docetism, Gnosticism, Montanism, Arianism, Modalism, Manicheanism, uh, Donatism, we did that last week. Today, Nestorianism, and then Pelagianism. There's actually going to be another class I'm going to have down here, and you'll see it when we get to the end. It's just going to be a wrap-up before we come back at all of this together. But today we're looking at Nestorianism. So we're going to do some delineations, we're going to define Nestorianism discuss modern manifestations and deliberate on biblical responses as we've been no- noticing as we go through most of the various heresies almost all of them are answering or trying to answer our lord's question who do you say that i am and that answer will shape how they how they view many other things While some of the heresies are actually more focused not on this, they're focused more on perceived failures and weaknesses in the church. You see that with um, um, the Montanists, and you saw that with the Donatists that we looked at last week. But not all of the heresies are as they appear. And Nestorianism will be one of those. It's kind of one of my favorite ones to talk about just for fun. um, And I'll explain as we go along. So the first thing to notice about, to know about the time of Donatism. So this is in the uh, fifth century. This is like early fifth century, all right. And so there are two main powerful players in this area, uh, uh, in the whole Nestorian conflict. And the two players are Nestorius, who was the the uh, the, uh, patriarch of Constantinople. Does anybody know where Constantinople is now? Istanbul. All right, that was a major power center in Christianity by the fifth, by the fourth and fifth century. Okay, so Nestorius had been made uh, pa- patriarch of Constantinople. Cyril of Alexandria was made pa- patriarch of Alexander. Right, so that's a place in North Africa um, that was extremely potent at the time and very powerful. So it's. Between two main powerful players, there's loads of rivalry and political intrigue. And I bring this up because um, one of the things I love about history, uh, it's too easy for us to flatline everything. The reason for the Civil War was this one single reason, right? And yet there's too many humans involved for it to ever be that one single reason, right? The reason why there was this split in that denomination is there's one single theological reason. Probably not. There's probably more to the story than one specific issue, okay? And so it's that way with Nestorianism. And as I was reading, I actually had to do a, do a paper on Nestorianism in seminary, and that's when it all kind of came to a head when I realized I'm reading Nestorius' own works. One of the few works that would still remain of his was reading one of them, and I was going... Nestorius himself was not a heretic. That's amazing. And then it all started coming out as you're reading other historians saying, oh, there's more to this than just the heresy of Nestorianism. There was actually these other things. Yes. I, I will a little bit. Yes. Oh, yes, dad jokes. Woo! High five. Yes, Bill Bill Case and trainee right there. <laughs> Tell us the rest of the Nestorianism, yes. Alright, so this is from the, the uh, uh, Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Uh, Nestorius' most articulate and vehement opponent was Cyril of Alexandria. Apparently, a significant portion of the debate between them is traceable to the ecclesiastical rivalry, rivalry between the two important C's. What is a C? Anybody know what a C is when it's used in this context? Besides the letter of the alphabet, yes. Alright, there's another Bill Case and trainee. Alright, yes? No. I know what you're saying, but no, that's not it. Here's what it is. When you see the word, when you see the word see in a context like this, it's, here's the definition. A see is a place in which a cathedral church stands identified as the seat of authority of a bishop or archbishop, Okay. I just wanted to give you that cuz you you'll run across it on occasion. And so you have it's interesting that uh, the evangelical dictionary of theology brings it right out that most of the conflict is traceable to ecclesiastical rivalry between these two church power sources, Constantinople and Alexander. Okay? And that's helpful when you when you get into the actual details and read the actual documents and don't listen to the press releases. You're, You get right into the sources. You realize, oh, the problem was that Cyril didn't like Nestorius and Nestorius didn't like Cyril. I mean, there was a lot of that going on, okay? So uh, Nestorius was patriarch of Constantinople. Nestorius was a strong heresy hunter. And I'll give you an example here in just a minute. Um, He... What happened is, one of the things he did is he crossed the emperor's sister and became a persona non grata um, with the political powers. And that plays into then the conflict over Nestorianism. So at at, uh, Nestorius' inaugural sermon as uh, Patriarch of Constantinople on the 10th of April, 428, Nestorius bellowed. Give me, O emperor, the earth purged of heretics, and I will give you heaven in return. Assist me in destroying heretics, and I will assist you in vanquishing the Persians. Wow! Lots of arrogance in that statement, right? But he was a powerful, very uh, vehement heresy hunter. I find that interesting that the heresy hunter becomes hunted down as a heretic. and. That plays out when you when you do when you've been around a while. You begin to notice that there's that trend too. Sometimes the the most vociferous and 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 uh, vocal end up tripping all over themselves and become part of a problem. So here was the give you some of this backstory here. In uh, once he was established as patriarch of Constantinople, Nestorius. Um, began to have conflicts with the emperor's sister. The emperor's sister had raised the emperor because the parents had died. She had raised the emperor. So she had extreme power in uh, Rome at that time or in the eastern part of the empire. He begins to have conflicts with her pretty quickly and one time he shouts out at her something about uh, being a woman and she responds and she's she's showing her the, the power of a woman in Christianity because she says something about Mary Mary being the God-bearer, Theotokos. That's the Greek word, and that will come up in a minute. And so Nestorius and uh, Pulcheria, I think her name was, start having head-to-head clashes. So much so that she had given some things to the church, to the cathedral, and he throws it out. well That's never a good thing, Right? And then there was a special entrance just for the emperor into the church. Now I have a problem with that, but there was a special entrance into the church just for the emperor and she used to come in with the emperor through that entrance. He bolted it shut to keep her from coming in that way to make her come in with the common people. So you could see he had never read Del Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Right? So the conflict actually begins on a very personal, relational power struggle long before he's ever declared as a heretic. Okay, he's already got problems. He's already making himself uh, persona non grata in so many different ways. Yesterday, in our uh, book study, we're reading that book 4040, and so we were sitting there talking about it. Well, in that the, uh, ninth chapter, the author says, I don't know who said this, but this is a really important statement It goes along with what he was saying. Here's the statement. It's like this. Whatever the issue, the issue is control. And I was, we were just talking about it before, uh, the elders and I were just talking about it, how many things that feeds into. Whatever the issue that's presented out there, the issue really is control. And that's exactly what you see uh, beginning to happen here with all of this. So before I go on any further, anybody have any questions up to this point? Okay. Okay. So, in various ways, uh, Nestorius began to push against the emperor's sister, even excluding her from the places of honor in the church. It was, not, uh, it was at this time, he also pushed back against a term being used for Mary, the mother of Jesus, Theotokos, which is just Greek for uh, bearer of God or mother of God. Okay? He began to push against it and started writing and, and preaching and saying, maybe we should just call her Christokos. Christo-taka, something like that, right? Christ-bearer instead of God-bearer, okay? And so, as Norman Russell puts in his biography on Cyril of Alexandria, he said this, quote, the enmity thus generated was to be a major factor in Nestorius's downfall. The enmity with enmity with the emperor's sister was to be a major faction uh, factor in the, Nestorius's downfall for there is little doubt that Pulcheria understood the attacks on the Theotokos, on the God-bearer, that language in theology, as a personal affront. When Nestorius began to preach against the title Theotokos, the response was led by people who were close to Polsharia. Their response back, okay? And so, you know you're not necessarily in a theological debate when it's being taken personally. This is actually a personal attack on me and others are siding with her and saying that as well. But I just want you to see how messy this is actually is before it even becomes an issue. So, oh, before I go any further. So, any questions at this point? Is everybody tracking with me? Does this, okay. This is better than watching a Hallmark love movie or something. So Nestorius and Nestorianism. So Nestorius and Nestorianism both disapproved of addressing Mary as Theotokos, but as Christotokos, um, she gave birth to just a baby, not to God himself. That's kind of the statement there. Uh, Fitzsimmons Allison in his book, The Cruelty of Heresy, says, weighty evidence has caused modern scholars to raise serious questions as to whether Nestorius was himself actually a Nestorian. Okay, And I want to emphasize that. Because sometimes you know, I say that about Calvinism. You know, John Calvin was not a good Calvinist according to later Calvinism. Sometimes, and there's some issues in there where they go back and forth. And so you have to look at the source, the beginner beginning, and then you have to try to separate your head from um, the originator and then later followers. Okay, that's always helpful, and that's the way it is with Nestorianism. Nestorius himself was uh, not a Nestorian, but Nestorianism. So there are people who have. Who so as Nestorius is being decried as a heretic, as people start to get vocal, then you have people who are hearing the press releases, hearing all of the secondhand charges against Nestorius, and these people are agreeing with the second hand charges. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and if you put the political thing behind it and the personal thing Right, right. Yes. Yes. And so, it gets put out in the press. It gets put out in uh, PR that this is who Nestorius is and he's a heretic and here's his heresy and they start mapping out what they think is his heresy and then whether he said those things or not and he didn't, um, most of those. And so, but then others hear that and they go, yeah, I agree with Nestorius or at least how Nestorius is portrayed in the press. Are you picking this up? Right? And so, that's what's going on. So Nestorianism separated Christ's divine and human mortal nature after union, after the incarnation. uh, The source of the union of the two natures was one will. So here's the point. So Christ is fully God and Christ is fully human, but there's such a divide as you're talking about Jesus that uh, there's a separation, a huge separation and uh, the only thing that unites the divine nature and the human nature is one will. Okay? And it's that they, the, the divine nature and the human nature have one will. Does anybody, have any, anybody hear anything in that statement that maybe gives you pause and makes you go, hmm? Anybody saying, hmm? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a huge problem in the statement as it's being laid out because it separates, it divides Jesus and creates... Almost a schizophrenic person. A fully divine nature that's totally separate from the fully human nature. The only thing that unites them is the super glue of the will. Okay, that becomes an issue. And that's the issue where the fight actually goes. But it gets thrown back on Nestorius all the time. So Nestorianism is a chronological, a Christological doctrine that emphasizes a distinction between the human and divine persons of Jesus. It was advanced by Nestorius. There's the time frame. Nestorius' teaching uh, brought him into conflict with other prominent church leaders, most notably Cyril of Alexandria, who, who criticized especially his rejection of the title Theotokos, the bringer forth of God or the bearer of God, the mother of God, for Mary, the mother of Jesus. Nestorius and his teachings were eventually condemned as heretical at the Council of Ephesus in 431, which led to the Nestorian schism. Churches supporting Nestorius broke off and went off with, uh, uh, from the rest of the Christian church, went off into Persia and modern-day Iran and Iraq. And they're still there. They still have a, a large uh, movement there. So, yes? Yes? Yeah, so that, we're not there. We're not there yet. But what you do have is you have, uh, rightly and wrongly, you start having an elevation of Mary to a special status. So there's a rightness to this and a wrongness, right? The rightness is she is she is very much like Eve, in the sense that you know she's the bearer of a new humanity, Christ, right? And so uh, and she's faithful to God. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. There's lots of reasons to give thanks for her and praise for her, right? But now you, you're moving in this time frame. You're starting to move to the invocation of the saints, and you're starting to move, which is therefore be Mary as well. So there's the wrong aspect, right? So Anne and I were looking at John 2 the other day, John 2, 1 through 11, where Mary tells Jesus, you know, it's the, the wedding at Cana, Right? And so there's no wine left, and Mary says, do whatever Jesus says to do, right? And so I've seen people pull that out of context and say, you know, that that tells you why you should pray to Mary, because she always has her son's ear, you know, she can always get her way with her son, right? And I mean, I've heard that, and it's like, but nobody thought that until about the fourth century and the fifth century, that's when they start talking like that. So you start seeing those things going on. So it's a good observation. Anybody else? All right. Many of Nestorius' supporters relocated to the, uh, the Sassanian Empire where they affiliated with the local Christian community known as the Church of the East. Over the next decades, the Church of the East became increasingly Nestorian in doctrine leading to uh, it becoming known alternatively as a Nestorian church. Does anybody know um, what, um, what invading army that's famous were actually Nestorians and they were a huge invading army and swept all the way through most of what's modern day Middle East and uh, from, the, from the far east, further east, to the, through the Middle East and on into modern day Turkey and so forth. Anybody know? Huh? No, wrong group. Attila the Hun. Many of his, many of his, many of his, uh, most of his army were Nestorians. Okay? And so you'll actually, they, they, they were surprised when they were doing the investigation, finding the Christian influence in there and the statements and so forth. And so they, they were Nestorians. Just showing you there's some connections here. So here are the basic teachings. Nestorius developed his Christological views as an attempt to ra- rationally, to explain and understand the incarnation of the r- divine Logos, the second person of the Holy Trinity, as the man Jesus, he had studied at the school of Antioch. And that's important because there are two major seminaries, or two major um, educational frameworks. And I mentioned this when we did the church history class. Anybody know there's Antioch, and what's the other one? The other one is in Northern Africa. Alexandria. Two major schools, and they approach Scripture a bit different. Antioch is far more literal, literal, was far more literalistic. And Alexandria was much more um, into um, um, symbolism and, and things like that, And so they're as they interpret. So Origen and Clement of Alexandria and others, if you ever run across them, you'll see them doing that. But Antioch was m- more known for being um, far more what well, we would probably be comfortable with in the way they interpreted the Scripture. So the Antiochian theologians had long taught a literalist interpretation of the Bible and stressed the distinctiveness of the human and the divine natures. Um, let me go back here just a minute. So notice that this is the answer to the question. Who do you say that I am? And he's trying to answer. And so, and it's actually more than a story is, uh, getting into the answer. But, but the story is trying to answer how is Jesus fully God and fully human? Anybody have... Ever tried to explain that and then stumble all over themselves? Yeah, right, okay. So, I mean, I get it, right? And so he's trying to, to, to honor both the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, okay? And then uh, some of his others start separating and pulling them apart and the only thing uniting them is will. So, Astorius' uh, teaching became the root of the controversy when he publicly challenged the long-used title Theotokos Uh, For Mary, he suggested that the title denied Christ full humanity. Notice his concern. That saying that she was the God-bearer denies His full humanity. Okay, Um, Arguing instead that Jesus had two persons, the divine Logos and the human Jesus, and as a result of His duality, He proposed Christotokos, Christotokos, whatever, the uh, bearer of Christ, which would be more emphasis then on the humanity of Jesus as a suitable title for Mary. You can stop me and ask questions when we're going along, if you want. I just did. Um, you are, so the, the thought is that if you call Mary Theotokos, if you call her the God-bearer, then what you've done is not only have you empowered Mary, or potentially, he doesn't bring this up, but potentially elevated Mary beyond what she should have been but you're actually emphasizing the divinity of Jesus over his humanity. And so Nestorius wants to go the other direction so that you're almost emphasizing the humanity of Jesus over his divinity. Mm-hmm. Yes? There's a Greek Orthodox and the Antiochian Orthodox, yeah. Oh, no, not really, no. Uh, the Antiochians are more, uh, they are literally from, I mean, the, the source is from Antioch, but it's more open to Western, to Western folks. And so you'll find them more inviting. So the, the Orthodox Church in America is another example of that. They're, they're far more inviting to Westerners. The Greeks don't like Westerners very often, you know. So I noticed when I was at a Greek Orthodox Church one time, there's nothing on the outside to tell you when they meet because they don't want you to know. Now, I don't know about Saint George's, but but I, that was been my experience. Yes. <laughs> it's already difficult enough just with one or the other title. So I don't know. Yes. So, well, so that's what I was saying about the difference between Nestorius and Nestorianism. Nestorius, there's a rivalry going on. Nestorianism, it's about these issues. And so, so that, those things happen. Like we talked about last week, the Donatists, the Donatism morphed from being a theological issue to being a social revolutionary issue that was with bloodshed, right? So these things shift and they change in that way. So to answer your question, I'm probably not answering it well, but, but that's kind of what's going on there. Uh, the, church, the Council of Ephesus took care of it. So I mentioned it, but, but we'll come back to it in a minute. Yes. It is a tough thing, yeah. It is tough. There was Council of Ephesus. We'll talk about it in a minute. Alright, so Scylla of Alexandria was Patriarch of Alexandria from 412 on. He strongly refuted Arianism and Nestorianism in his writings. He wrote an article, or he wrote a a source, a work called um, The Twelve, maybe it was The Twelve Denunciations of Nestorianism or something like that. And he spoke really harshly in those. um, uh, um, And that's where that really begins to come to a head, is in that writing. Uh, His major writings also include a defense of Christianity against paganism and attacks. I think he's got a cool beard, by the way. If that, icon, if that icon is close to representation. So, um, the Council of Ephesus is at uh, Ephesus, clearly, right? So this is just right here. When you think about Ephesians, it's right on the coast right there. Or it was, it's not anymore. Silt is all filled in the, the area. And so, the old Ephesus is actually further away from the coast now. But it was right there. Anybody remember anything about Ephesus? Is there like a letter or two maybe written? To yeah. So the book of Revelation, this is the first of the seven churches. The seven churches, by the way, are right in here. Okay, this is modern day Turkey. I lived right over here. I was baptized in the Mediterranean right there. You can see my smiling face right there. Okay. Ann and I went over here to Antioch and had a, uh, with the base chapel, had a marriage uh, retreat of some kind twice, I think, we were there. So uh, that was fun to be there. So anyways... But that's where the seven churches are. So the Council of Ephesus is right there. It's a pretty, it was a pretty important port city and also therefore had not only commercial importance, but it had ecclesiastical importance. That's why they held, held it there. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Here's the rest of the details. Um, 200 bishops were there. They responded to Nestorianism and they defended uh, the faith. So the key defense against Nestorianism was that the term Theotokos is an ancient term, but more importantly, it carries a deep biblical concept: the fact that Mary carried in her womb the one whom God Himself had spawned. Right? That the Father had spawned the one who is the divine and eternal Son of God. So there's a biblical aspect of that. It honors her to remember that, and is He also the Christ? He is. He's fully human. He's fully divine. Okay. The problem we have is we sometimes want to to use a Calvin phrase from his book on uh, the sacrament. Sometimes we want to divorce things instead of just simply distinguishing them, okay? So there's a lot of divorcing going on, pulling those apart. Yep. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but Mary ends up ends up uh, uh, being targeted in drive by shootings, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah yeah. Well, that, and that kind of reminds you then of the backdrop with the struggle between him and Polcharya, right? So yeah, and that's why she took it personal. That every time he preached against it, he was actually talking about her, or fighting against her. So she took it very personal. Um. If we don't believe that Mary is Theotokos, then we don't believe that Jesus Christ as God, uh, we don't believe Jesus Christ as God, which leads us to deny the whole Trinity. If Mary gave birth to Christ uh, as a human being only, then our salvation cannot be fulfilled for a simple uh, simple man separated from God cannot be the Savior. You've got to keep both the full humanity and divinity of Christ together. It's hard for us to do that because We've never experienced it before. You have never met anybody else who's fully human and fully divine. That's outside of our experience, right? Have you ever met somebody who's fully human and fully divine? Well, I'm just thinking about the uh, apostles. They did meet someone who was fully human and fully divine and did not ever Yeah, 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 yeah. So right. even if we did it wouldn't matter. Right, right. Yeah, good point. Yeah. It'd be hard. I, I did I just kinda put of my head and he looked back. Sure. yes right yeah right 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 yeah the problem is that the, that that denominator is not necessarily there in this conflict So, what you have going on here, this is the theological term, it's called the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of idioms. It's in our confession, talks about this. We as Reformed don't like to talk about it very often, and our Lutheran friends love to talk about it all the time. Okay? But it's this communication of idioms. So let me give you an example of communication of idioms. So in Acts chapter 20, and you can go there if you want to follow, So Acts 20, as Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, down in verse 28, Paul says, pay careful attention to okay, I'll wait till everybody gets there. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Now, can God, as God, bleed? No! How did God obtain the church with His own blood? It's called the communication of idiots. It's God in the flesh, right? And so to call Mary Theotokos, the God-bearer, is a very biblical concept in the same way that what Paul just said is a very biblical concept. You can also call her Christotokos, the Christ-bearer. Talk about the humanity. The problem came with no, I don't want to do that because I think it goes too far this way. So there's a, you know, concerns about abuse and so forth. But there's a, there's a rightness to the, some of those statements. And what you have to do is you have to make sure you don't fall off the horse this side or that side. Okay? Does that make sense? So you can say those things, but you've got to make sure you have that biblical context. Yes? Oh yeah right yes yes right sure well yeah there's that she's a Davidic... yeah she's the Davidic land right but there are other there were other women in that lineage that could have been so and that's I got what you're saying, yeah, but yes, yeah, so there's nothing special in and of her herself as she stands right so there's no need for an immaculate conception that mary was conceived without original sin or any of those things right so but she's displayed for example in luke she is displayed as the epitome of faith she's actually the first i guess you could almost say the first believer you know be it to me according to your word i believe right and so she's laid out that way especially in luke all the way through yes right yes yes and so the problem is, is when, um, when we begin to go too far. So you got to remember, this is all this is all very culturally conservative. If you come from a culture that is used to having multiple deities, male and female, and you have to petition the female deities to try to get the male deities to do their job, right? So it just it's in the drinking water. So it was no surprise that it happened, right? So yeah, good, yes. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, that would be... Yes, that would be a full... Yeah, that would be a full-blown heresy. Yeah. I didn't say you did. Yes. Uh, it, it, they all fit together. Yeah, in fact... Uh, oh, there's lots of names. Yeah, but, but you bring one. So Nestorianism... Uh, Nestorianism becomes too close to adoptionism. Anybody remember adoptionism? That here's this human who becomes adopted into the divinity, right? So it all bumps into some of those things, right? And so that's what you have. Part of that aspect is going on as well. Great. Alright, so uh, the Council of Ephesus affirmed that Mary is Theotokos, excommunicated Nestorius in his writings, and affirmed that Christ is the incarnated Logos, and we cannot separate the human, and here's the key point, you cannot separate the human and the divine nature of Christ a- after the Incarnation. There's an actual theological term for the union. Anybody ever heard of the hypostatic union? Right? The union of the persons. Right? It's not a muddling, not a confusing, like you did when, you know, when, um, when Pam made biscuits yesterday. Thank you for the biscuits, they were yummy. Right? and for the gravy. Thank you, Cindy. All right? But when she made the biscuits and she put all the stuff in there, she began to start whipping that stuff up and it confused it all together, right? So that's how you got the great biscuit. So you don't want to confuse the divinity and the humanity, right? It's not an egg that you crack and put in and start mixing up, okay? But you cannot divide them. Okay. Did they just it yes. They exactly. Yes. That, okay? Yes. It happens all the time. Happens all the time. As soon as you are declared persona non grata by any group of people, your writings are usually thrown out. Yeah. 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 I had this conflict, uh, this discussion the other day with someone who was deriding Jonathan Edwards. He's probably America's greatest theologian and philosopher. But deriding him because he owned slaves and defended slavery. And that therefore negates all of his writings. And I said, no, What? What? So it's one issue. Poo-poo him. He did a bad thing, right? But then it negates everything he ever wrote, right? And so that's what happens. And that happens a lot. Yes? 1,100 years? Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here are all your books. Tell me what... Recant your books. What? what? Why in my books do I recant? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, That happens all the time. Alright, so Nestorius' opponents found his teachings too close to the heresy of adoptionism. This is what I was talking about a minute ago. The idea that Christ had been born a man who had later become adopted as God's son. Some of Nestorius' opponents argued that he put too much emphasis on the human nature of Christ and others debated that the difference... Uh, that Nestorius implied between the human nature and the divine nature created a fracture in the singularity of Christ, thus creating two Christ figures. And that's usually the charge you will hear. Right? So, just for fun, way back in the days of the early Reformation, our Lutheran friends charged John Calvin and his buddies with being Nestorians. You're creating two Christs! That's how they charged them. And then all the good reformed turned around and charged the Lutherans with being, uh, so I don't remember what the other one was, but they went the other direction. So it was a wonderful family experience. But, but you'll have that, that's, the kind of, that's where the common phrase is, cre- you create two Christs. And so, uh, any questions before we get into this part? Yes? That's what I was was pointing out earlier is that uh, most of the scholars now say that Nestorius was probably not a Nestorian, right? Just the followers went off because they, as I mentioned, they they are listening to all the press releases against Nestorius and going, yeah, I agree with that. It's kind of like, by the way, it's kind of like TULIP. Who invented the phrase, the acronym TULIP? The Armenians, Right? And so I don't like using, I'll use it, but I don't like using TULIP because I'm letting somebody else call the shots and tell me what I believe. But oh, wait a minute. I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm not like a 67-point Calvinist, right? You see what I'm saying? I mean, when you let the other side call the shots and then you embrace it, then it becomes easier for them to deal with it. Yeah, that's okay. There's a lot of up in here too. One Christ, yes, when we start pulling those apart. So when we start, yeah, when we start pulling apart, that's the best way to put it, when we start pulling them apart. So we, we get really close sometimes when we say, when Jesus talks about, you know, no one knows when I'm going to return, not even the Son of Man, only the Father. Right? There's a, there is a sense in which He's speaking very much from His human nature but some people will take that too far. Once they begin to go too far with that. So, like, uh, canonicism, which is a, a liberal heresy from the, 19th, from the 20th century, that Jesus took away, Jesus' incarnation was his humility, his humility was that he took off all of the divine foreknowledge, that he stripped himself down of all divinity. Okay, and that's that's a problem. And you see it, so you'll see it there. To answer this question, that's where you begin to see it is a modern liberalism modern theological liberalism. They, they who? You would always know he's fully human. I'm going to get to this in just a minute, but you will always know he's fully human and fully divine. And that's and you go, how can I get my mind around that? Don't worry about it. I don't know how to say it, but don't worry about it. Be, rejoice, right? Because without the humanity, we have no salvation. Without the divinity, we have no, there's no way out from underneath the wrath of God, right? There's, you need both, and, you, and you, so you embrace Christ. I love the way our membership vows put it. And then, um, where's Glenn? And so, Glenn Mary put together uh, part of our singing for the VBS was from uh, the New City Catechism, which talks about receiving and resting on Christ alone as He is offered in the Gospel. And how do you see Jesus presented to us in the Gospel? Fully human, fully divine. And there's no room to try to pull those apart. Yes? Yeah, right. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, so, so, you know, Luther was a Calvinist. Yeah, he wasn't a Lutheran. I mean, just go read the bondage of the will and you go, amen, brother. In fact, I was at a, in fact, we were at a reformation conference. We did one in Midland. You you may remember this and Bob Pace, who was a Lutheran, uh, LCMS pastor was there. And then there was a Anglican pastor and me. So we gave this conference and at the end, we did this question and answer and somebody asked about free will or something. And Bob gave this wonderful, rousing, good old Calvinistic total depravity only by the sovereign grace of God and, and all these other things. Everything we would have said. And I looked at him and I said, Bob, you're a Calvinist. You're shut your mouth? Right? But, but Luther, so if you ever talk with some Lutherans, not most, not, not the LCMS necessarily, but some of them, you start talking to them, they talk about how Calvinists are just terrible because they believe in predestination and, and all that stuff and I say well Luther did and they usually shut right up because they never read anything that Luther wrote right. but the, 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 the bondage of the will from Luther you, you already see it right there okay so uh, we already kind of dealt with this I think the, the primary place you see modern day Nestorianism is with liberalism theological liberalism it's just it's just clearly there okay when Jesus is portrayed as Chai Guevara it's there Full-blown Nestorianism, nister- nister- okay? You know who Chai Guevara is. I probably butchered his name. Huh? Yeah. Okay? Alright, so let's talk about biblical answers and then we're going to wrap this up for the day. So already for the biblical answers, okay, biblical responses to both ancient and modern, Eastern, uh, 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 to the modern Nestorianism, I think Acts 20, verse 28 is a good place to go to see the communication of idioms. Think about our Charles Wesley hymn that we love so dearly. It's all communication of idioms. And shall it be that, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Yes. It's a communication of idioms. That's actually an anti Nestorian hymn. And I don't know if he even knew that, but it's an anti Nestorian hymn, right? It's a beautiful hymn. I love that hymn. Okay? And so uh, so Thinking about, you know, God purchased his church with his own blood. Oh, we've got this communication of idioms. It's God in the flesh. God as man did this, okay, and so forth. Um, Again, another go-to is Philippians, of course, chapter 2. His humility, humbling himself to the Father and dying on the cross. Can you think of any other biblical responses to Nestorianism, to separating Christ's uh, humanity and his divinity? Yeah, I was just trying to just. Here's the Nestorianism, right? But a a biblical response to that. Yep. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, John 4 is a great example. Jesus sits down at the, the well because he's what? Why is he sitting there? He's, th- he's weary, it says. "Here's the creator of the universe, weary, and yet he knows this woman, right? The omniscience. Oh, my goodness. And it, it, does it, it doesn't try to explain all that, but there it is. Limited yes. Yeah. 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 So Yeah, so go go with Moose's point, go to Jude. Everybody go to Jude. And most of you know Jude is one of my favorite books because it's a short book and it gets no press, and I'm a short guy, and I have short guy syndrome. So I love Jude. I used Jude in my doctoral thesis. Um, I've, ta- I've actually preached on it here twice. But I want you to look at uh, the way verse 4 ends. And if you have a different translation what I'm about to read, just let me know, because we're going to talk about that too. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who is the God of the Exodus? Jesus. And if you have the King James or the other translations, it may not say Jesus there, but it says the Lord who saved. Well, who did He just mention as Lord in the previous verse? Jesus. So either way, whatever your translation is, it comes to this point. Okay, Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. This is why we're not Marcionites and all those other things, right? And so, But there very clearly is, divi- is divinity, but then as, uh, with the rest of Scripture, we can't miss the humanity and we'll keep those together. So, anybody else? yes yes right that's what Fred was saying that faith is a gift yeah and Janelle's back there shaking her head yes to you so yes yeah yeah I love the way the shorter yes David I love the way the shorter catechism puts it because this is, this is historical. This goes all the way way back to the Council of Ephesus. Okay, so this is we, we do not hate church history. We love church history, we love our roots as a church. Okay? And so here's the statement: who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continueth ongoing tense here continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. There's the hypostatic union. Okay? And notice that last one. Forever. There will never be a day when he will take off his humanity and say that was discardable. Here, let me fold it up and shove it in the drawer. Right? He will always be that's part of his sacrifice for us is the incarnation. He became human because being human is not a bad thing. He became part of creation because creation is not evil, right? And so, I just want to emphasize that, it's a little bit over on the other side, but it's the two natures, but one person forever. And that's where we we stand. And then it goes on to say, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. I think those two shorter catechism questions and answers really hit the nail right smack on the head and why we're not in a David. Yes. Right. Yep. Yeah. Right, 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 yes, right. that's a great, I mean, and so that's why I say all these bleed begin to bleed in together, and that how you know where they're off is when it starts um, without, uh, when it goes in certain directions, then it starts taking away from God's grace, God's love, and salvation, and so forth. So thinking about Nestorianism, if what unites the divine and the human is the will, then the human will is very important, and you can will yourself then into right relationship with God. Anybody hear Pelagius in there? Right. So we'll talk about Pelagianism next week. That was my segue. Boop, boop. Yes. No. Yeah, why would they make it up? Yeah. You'd rather, I'd rather have, you know, most of us probably at our hearts really would rather have, you know, that we can pull ourselves up our own bootstraps and make ourselves divine. Right? And so, yeah. So with all of this in mind, and we don't have time to answer all these questions, but with all this in mind, how should this impact our faith, our relationships... Our devotion and worship. Sidney keeps coming back to that. How should it affect our devotions worship? How should it affect our assurance of salvation? Going and realizing here's the eternal Son of God and He had no problems becoming fully human. Why? For us and for our salvation. And He will always be there for us and our salvation. Where's your assurance? In Him and in the incarnation. Somebody asked me the other day, where's your assurance? And I said, well, they said, is it in your experience? I said, Oh, I've had lots of experiences, but none of them are very assuring, trust me, right? My assurance is in Christ, who He is and what He's done for us, right? And then uh, also, how does this impact your perception of humanness? You get back to the Incarnation, it should change the whole way you see being human and other human beings, so, but I don't have time. So next week, we will do Pelagianism. Uh, and then I'm going to do one more after that and it's going to be a review and application. We'll actually work back through some of these very quickly and give you some time to, to, to... Now that you've thought about them more, you can think about some other aspects of these. So, Any questions before I go? Any comments before we stop? Okay. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God, it's amazing that You became fully human God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. You did this for us, for our salvation. You did this to glorify the Father and enjoy Him forever. You did this, Lord. And we often don't remember it. When Monday comes and Tuesday comes, we're off somewhere else doing other things and we forget. But what, amazing, what an amazing story. What amazing truth. As Charles Wesley said, we are awed that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Lord, we pray that you would draw us close to you. You would draw, bring us to appreciate more and more who you are, what you have done, are doing, and will do for your people. Bless us now as we enter into the worship. We pray for your Spirit to fill us that we may truly worship you in spirit and in truth. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.